0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: Hello, I'm Mark Riley. And I'm Rob Hughes. And you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. So, V is for Cherry Vanilla. So, Cherry Vanilla, born Kathleen Dorothy, October 16th, 1943, is an American singer songwriter, publicist, and actress. After working as an actress in Andy Warhol's Pork, she worked as a publicist for David Bowie. Before becoming a rock singer, she subsequently became a publicist for Vangelis. Yeah, strange career. Born in Queens, New
2: York, Cherry Vanilla began her career in the 1960s as a producer of radio and TV commercials, whilst also DJing at clubs in Manhattan and on the French Riviera. By the 70s, after gaining notoriety as a rock and roll groupie, she became an underground actress and played the title role, as you
1: mentioned, in Pork at the Roundhouse Theatre in London. This was followed by a two-year stint as Davy Bowie's PR and roles in three more plays in New York and Berlin. So uh, this is from uh, her book, Lick Me. Hmm. Okay, which gives you an idea. I did actually see uh, Cherry Vanilla. Oh, did you? I saw her playing at the Rafters, and I'm pretty sure that she had a t-shirt with a black T-shirt with glitter words, Lick Me. Yeah, that was a famous one, wasn't it? So uh, yeah.
2: That would be her own band. This wouldn't be with the police, was it?
1: It was with the police. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, well. the police were a backing band on the night. Uh, would I be right in saying that... It would have been Henry Padavani. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it That's was. what I think it was. And Henry yeah. Padavani had previously been in the band Squeeze, hadn't he? Yes, yeah, he'd been in a very, the very early incarnation, hadn't he? Okay, so all that. So I did get to see it, and it yeah. was crap. Right, okay, was it really? Was yeah, it? yeah, it was. Yeah. It, was okay. it was rotten, really. But, but anyway, but anyway- uh, this, this is from her autobiography. Uh, Pork's set was entirely white and had three main areas loosely representing the factory, Max's Kansas City and Amanda Pork's bedroom, all dominated by Pork's big bed in the middle. There were no curtains. <laughs> the action and lighting just moved from one area of the stage to the next and the characters entered and exited via revolving panels at the rear. They did, yes. A half hour before the start of the play, just before the audience, was
2: allowed in she says I took my place on the bed and stayed there completely still as if I was sleeping until the play began and I was completely naked so as the audience members entered and sat there waiting they were already confronted with a sight that made some of them feel rather
1: uncomfortable Mm. I spent a lot of time rolling around with two naked young men in high heels called Pepsodent Twins one with his pubes powdered blue and one with his pubes powdered green, before gradually putting my clothes on and moving about the set, all the while shooting to vegamin, which was their name for speed, through my pants, of course. Yeah, most of my scenes
2: she continued were either rambling, convoluted, one-sided rap sessions with the Andy character, played by Tony Z, or raging quarrels with my mother character, played by Suzanne Smith. And there were also some, uh, well... Some fairly distasteful scenes in there, weren't there? Which we won't go into, I don't think. But, you know, it, was, it wasn't it was for the squeamish. Pork. Well, no, go on. Well, she says here, some of these scenes were quite distastefully graphic, uh, like the one where I plopped globs of chocolate pudding onto a clear glass dish, held over the face of one of the twins, while Vulva, the character, described the details of a plate job, uh, a scene that caused gasps from some in the
1: audience and led a few of them to walk out, especially when I proceeded to lick the spoon. You've lost me. She became known for her outrageous marketing strategies, which included an open offer to perform oral sex on any DJ who would play Bowie records and a series of radio commercials that began, Hi, my name is Cherry Vanilla and I've got scoops for you while working on Radio Hanoi in opposition of the Vietnam War. I didn't know you had the original tape there
2: no, to play in. Enough, it? In 1974, after parting ways with Bowie, she launched her career as a performing poet. She formed her first band with Kasim Sultan, which played under her name, and in 1976 she formed Cherry Vanilla and her Staten Island band. The group's first released material was the track Shake Your Ashes on the Max's Kansas City album of 1976.
1: That year also saw the release of Vanilla's art book, Pop-tart. Her high profile in New York was the impetus for Miles Copeland III to invite her to England. She relocated to London in 1976, becoming part of the burgeoning punk scene, and was signed to RCA Records. So for those who don't know, Miles Copeland III, he, well, he's the brother to Stuart Copeland. That's yes, right. He managed the police. Yes. He had various different record labels. So he had Step Forward. He had Deptford Fun City. He had IRS. Illegal. 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 Yeah. And he had a lot of there. A lot of it was very playful, because I was the forward. We're on step forward. Yeah. And so I got to know him a little bit. In fact, funnily enough, where we're sat now, I bumped into him one day, Mm. just round the corner. There used to be an auction house there. Mm. And I walked down the road and I said, Miles. He went. Who are you? I said. Yeah, well, you drove me around America for six uh, six weeks once. It's <laughs> Mark Riley. He used to be in the forum. Yeah. so we had a chat. And I said, he said, "What are you doing around here?" I said, "Well, I live here." A more pertinent question: What are you doing here? And he was buying antique, really, really antique tiles. Wow! From the auction house, and he'd right. come from London specifically to buy them. But he's a he's an amazing character, mm. um, and very, very clever. And obviously, he was a guy who really he, he did all of the work on the police and turned them into the you know. The, the, of course. the world beating band that they were yeah. um, but he also his brother uh, I can't remember his name now but his brother had a booking agency in um, in America which worked with the fall as well and that was the FBI ah. so he had IRS which is obviously the <laughs> yeah. Inland Revenue Service he had the FBI which is something like the um, something booking international federal booking international okay. so they were very playful um, with using kind of government associated things yeah. I believe that his yeah. father was involved in the Burgess and McLean, the spy. Oh, is that right? Well, yeah. they knew
2: that their dad, their father, was in the CIA, hence all the allusions to all that. But yeah, I didn't realise that. That's that was right. right. I think that's right anyway. Oh, okay, fantastic. So the London-based Cherry Vanilla Band initially consisted of Vanilla's boyfriend stroke guitarist Louis Lepore and pianist Zecca Esquibel, along with bassist Gordon Sting Sumner, guitarist Henry Padovani and drummer Stuart Copeland, who loaned their services and equipment in exchange for
1: £15 a night and the support spot on a tour. Do you know what? I would imagine that Sting really hates being called Gordon, so you can see where this is going, can't (laughs) you? The tour included a date on the 5th of March 1977 at London's legendary Roxy Club. The support spot was for Copeland's band The Police and will be the setting for the band's first live performance. Wow. A more permanent lineup comprised
2: Louis Lepore on guitar, Zeke Escobar, Girl keyboards, Howie Finkel on bass and Manny Mancuso on drums. Their first release was a single The Punk in September 77, followed
1: in February 78 by the debut album Bad Girl. So it's trying a little bit hard, isn't yeah, it? That's the so, thing, you know, um, it's like a t-shirt with Lick Me On and just yeah. wearing pants and, and tights and stilettos and all that kind of yeah. stuff, and The Punk and bad Girl. We get the picture, don't yeah, we? Yeah, we do, really. really I mean, yes. I don't wish to be uncharitable about it, but I probably have.
2: Yeah, I think you have been already, so <laughs>
1: yeah. might as well just carry on <laughs> as the way you were I'm already. I'm sorry, yeah. Uh, there followed another single and a second album, Venus Divinal, in 1979. She then split up with the poor and the group disbanded with Vanilla returning to the US. In 1980, she performed the narrative on Vangelis' Not A Bit, All Of It from his See You Later album. She went on to run his American office. In 1985, she played the hitchhiker and the waitress on Roger Waters' album The Pros and Cons of Hitchhiking. Oh. She returned to recording in the early 90s, releasing Blue Roses with Man Parish
2: and Barb Morrison, plus two singles. Blue Roses combined spoken word poetry with electronic music. In the 80s and 90s, she wrote for magazines worldwide, whilst also running one of the first phone sex services in America and doing film projects with jazz great Chet Baker
1: and fashion photographer Bruce Weber. In 1995, she moved to Hollywood, California where she worked for director Tim Burton before establishing Europa Entertainment Inc., the US office for composer Vangelis, until 2014. In 2010, Chicago Review Press released her memoir, Lick Me, How I Became Cherry Vanilla.
2: Yes, so on to the David Bowie connection now. So, as part of her job as Bowie's PR, she was responsible for getting him into as many American pop magazines as possible. This extended to Cherry Vanilla serving as Bowie's interviewer on occasion. For example, so this is a very brief interview found from Roxine in 1973, uh, in which she says, it's kind of sweet looking back because you can hear how young and shy we are. So uh, She, she do not sound very shy to me. <laughs> no, not at all, but, you know, it's her words, Mark. Yeah. So uh, she says, she starts off by saying, uh, do you feel removed from the body and the feel that you create on the
1: planet? Bowie, until I'm performing or writing, I mainly feel pretty much like an empty vessel. I don't particularly feel... Period. Mm. Some people say, she says, by saying you're
2: bisexual, you're kind of flaunting that in a way. Who's flaunting that? You're very masculine to me. Well, I am a stud. What about when you're making love? Do you feel real then? Ever seen any flying saucers? I've got to say, Mark, I've never taken that tack in an interview, you know. No, I don't blame you. Yeah,
1: so uh, we're going to move to another excerpt here involving Bowie from Lick Me. Okay. Whatever had eroded their trust in DeFries, David and Angie Bowie were clearly no longer happy with him and the whole main man operation. DeFries temporarily quelled their anger by ensconcing them in a two-bedroom suite at New York's swanky Sherry Netherlands Hotel, where they managed to run up around $20,000 worth of room service charges in a month. (laughs) Uh, She continues,
2: the Bowie de affiliation continued out of necessity for a while, but it was clear to everybody around them that their whole Elvis and Colonel Tom Parker dynamic was disintegrating, as was the
1: Bowie's marriage, it seemed. David liked my apartment on 20th Street, and he also liked Norman Fisher's cocaine, something for which he'd recently acquired an insatiable appetite, and for which I had, of course, hooked him up. And since my days were winding down at Main Man, I guess David felt comfortable getting high with me and opening up about anything and everything that was on his mind. He spent
2: many an evening, often an all-nighter, sitting in one of my canary-yellow enameled wicker chairs, doing lines, drinking milk. He never ate at all during this period, and telling me one crazy story after another. De Vries and Adolf Hitler were buddies. Lou Reed was the devil. He himself was from another planet and was being held prisoner on Earth, going on and on about power, symbols, communication, music, the occult, Alistair Crowley and Merlin the Magician. I never did any of David's Coke, and what's more,
1: he never offered. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, she continues, I just sat there, smoked my pot, sipped my cafe bustello, and got totally into his rap. This was probably the period when I was most in love with him. Just listening to him talk, I imagine. Uh, sometimes
2: David would busy himself with my record collection Duke Ellington's Live at Newport and The Ohio Player's Skin Tight amongst his favourite LPs. And occasionally he and I would have sex in my mirrored, mosquito netted, dichro lit pink satin bedroom taking everything a bit further than we had that first time in Boston, and utilising the many new sex toys I'd since
1: acquired. I told you she wasn't shy. No, she wasn't. But also, I mean, just uh, uh, picking the bones out of this, if you pardon the phrase, Ohio Players, Skin Tight, I mean, that's a big album for Bowie, because that was really what set him off by the look of it, particularly for that sound for Young Americans, wasn't it? Definitely, yeah, huge. And he obviously covered um, them, didn't he? So, um, anyway, uh, one time after I'd arranged for him to shop privately at the new Yves Saint Laurent boutique on Madison Avenue and get the most fabulous black wool overcoat it came up the five flights of stairs to my apartment and it me without even taking off the coat and then left immediately to hang out with Mick Jagger what whoa, a gent whoa, hey Bowie liked my bedroom so much he even bought Claudia Lanier and
2: Jean Millington the other sister from Fanny there for sex on occasion I didn't participate but I got off on how much he appreciated the setting oh, oh nice you hey, see aesthetics isn't it that's it what, is really that's what drew Bowie
1: about yeah, that. There, yeah there's
2: no doubt about that so uh, when Lick Me came out I did interview her for uh, well a defunct magazine now called Word magazine which right. was great and I loved it uh, so I did get to interview her talking about all sorts of stuff obviously her life you know she worked in one of the ad agencies on Madison Avenue in the city. so if you ever seen um you know uh, mad men she went to fire island and all that so she was part of that clique for a while really? you know, it's a really interesting life wow but obviously this is uh, pertinent to bowie so uh, i said to her at one point uh, you talk a lot in the book about your professional and personal relationship with david bowie at one point in 74 he's babbling away at you in your apartment on 20th street in new york presumably high on drugs did you witness a big transformation in him from when he first
1: arrived in the states Her reply, you know, I feel responsible for that. I was the one who introduced him to a guy called Norman Fisher, who was the biggest cocaine dealer in New York. Bowie had already tried coke, maybe because he'd been hanging out with Mick Jagger, though I can't say that for sure, but I know they'd become good friends. Maybe Bowie had been exposed to coke for a while, but all I know is that when I was with him on that first tour, there was no coke. I think he'd smoked pot. But Coke wasn't his
2: thing. She went on to say this guy, Norman Fisher, was a very unusual character. He was quite a sophisticated gentleman and had this fabulous penthouse apartment that was like a salon where you'd find William Burroughs in the afternoon, Patty Smith, a guy sitting there with a leather mask on his face. And everybody went there to get their drugs and hang out for hours. So Bowie was as attracted by him as he was to Bowie. And this guy was a
1: major art collector. She continued, The reason I think Bowie got so deeply into it was through hanging out with Norman Fisher. who was unlike any other Coke dealer. He was intrigued by this idea of the salon and celebrities hanging out with non-celebrities. That whole world attracted him heavily for a while. He saw all the poetry of it. It was more than just the white powder... And she continued, as I say in the book, it
2: was my favourite time with him. I just love staying up all night listening to his stories. He could take you all over with his stories of Merlin the Magician and all those concept theories about uh, Alistair Crowley and the universe. And then I brought up that comment we'd just kind of read out a few minutes ago. I said, well, at one point you say
1: he would equate Lou Reed with the devil. And she said, I I wrote this little poem once in a little book that I kept, and the title of it was Lou Reed, The Devil and Me. And that was inspired by Bowie in one of those states. He'd taken me aside and said, I've just been to see Lou Reed. Don't ever go there because he's a devil. Wow, okay, she continued. Uh, But then he'd be hanging out with Lou Reed all the time.
2: So it was just one of those things. He'd never talked so much before. If I did coke in those days, I'd just clammed up. I'd be the exact opposite. I'd just stare like a broom. But Bowie on coke would just talk on and on and on. Uh, And then I said, uh, Bowie also phoned you in a panicky state from Los Angeles to say how he'd been put under a hex by black witches and they were trying to make him produce a devil baby.
1: Was that all part of the same paranoia? I don't know if it was paranoia when he got to New York. His stories were more to do with universal paranoia and government paranoia. But he himself wasn't personally paranoid about this black magic thing until he was in L.A. That whole thing really got him going about them wanting him to make a devil baby. At the time, it was so important to
2: him. She said, I love getting the phone call from L.A. I love that it was me that he turned to to help get him out of a black magic curse. I felt so flattered. I loved any communication with him because I'd had such an experience with him. It was such a rocket ship ride with David. I didn't want to be ignored. It's
1: strange, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, she obviously had a real fondness for him, Mm. but she's still, like, getting a kick out of the fact that he's ringing her up absolutely terrified and and convinced that witches are are
2: after him. Yeah, and this sort of really kind of anguished time in his life, Mm. you know, there's one thing I had to go back to, by the way, in this interview, because at some point during the book, Uh, She does write that Sting's wife, when he'd tour with the, well, proto-police, used to pack
1: his sandwiches and fruit each week for him while they were on tour in a little Tupperware box. Bless. So this is what she said. They just had a brand new baby, and although they had a nice apartment, I think they were squatting there or something. I mean, I paid them £10 a night, and sometimes we'd be out there in that rickety old van, out for four or five nights in a row, and hoping we'd make enough money for gas. There was no money for hotels, so that's all he made. And he had to come home to his wife and baby, so you can imagine how difficult
2: that was. Uh, She said, I'm always grateful to them for the memories, but I'm not grateful to them for erasing me from their past. Whenever I see him in person, Sting is always very sweet and acknowledges me, even if he doesn't have to anymore. I've heard him say things like, without Cherry, we wouldn't have made it, and Cherry got us our first gigs. But when you read their histories and all the other things that have been written about them, they're kind of
1: embarrassed. They've erased me from their history, but I opened the door for them. She said, I think they saw me as a novelty act. Which, of course, I was. I wasn't putting any punches on that. Then suddenly they became very serious musicians and wanted to erase that part of their life. I was a bombshell, sex rocker, or whatever it was, although Sting had played for strippers before. Well, you can read more when we start on our A to Z of the police. Oh, Holy I was joking, A to Z of strippers, then, Bob. I thought I'm not signed up for that at all. No.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. and Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com host. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes.
1: V is for
2: Mike Vernon. Yes, Mike Vernon, born 20th of November 1944, English music exec, studio owner and record producer from Harrow in Middlesex. He produced albums for British blues artists and groups in the 60s, Working with the Bluesbreakers, Savoy Brown, Chicken Shack, Climax Blues Band, Eric Clapton, Fleetwood Mac, 10 years after, loads more,
1: including David Bowie. After playing for a while in the Mojo Men, Vernon started working for Decca Records in 1963, entering production with an album by Texan blues singer and pianist Curtis Jones, and followed up that with projects by American bluesmen, champion Jack Dupree, and Otis Spann. At a time when John Mayle and Eric Clapton had established their names live
2: with the Bluesbreakers but had made relatively few recordings, Vernon encouraged Mayall to make an album with the Clapton Bluesbreakers lineup for Decca, which Mayall returned to after a brief spell at Immediate.
1: In 1966, Vernon was in the producer's chair for the only album the Bluesbreakers made with Eric Clapton as guitarist, Bluesbreakers, which is often cited as the best British blues album, which is also called sometimes the Beano album. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because you're reading a copy of the Beano on the front.
2: End. Yeah, Vernon also produced the Bluesbreakers' only album with Clapton's replacement, Peter Green, called A Hard Road. It was while working with the Blues Breakers that Vernon became familiar with the musicians who were to become
1: the nucleus of Fleetwood Mac, particularly Peter Green and bassist John McVie. Vernon produced Fleetwood Mac's first few albums and singles, including the hit Albatross, and was on board for much of their most blues-based work. Blue Horizon made a major mistake, though, and forgot to pick up their option for a second year on Fleetwood Mac's contract. DO! Which meant that the group left Blue Horizon in early 1969. What a blunder. That was a real oversight. Uh,
2: there was still plenty of work, though, for Vernon at Blue Horizon and other labels during the late 60s. These included recordings by 10 Years After and Savoy Brown, several other lesser lights of the British blues boom as well. As a major blues-stroke R&B enthusiast himself, Vernon seems to have allowed the
1: bands to pretty much just do what they like in the studio. Vernon did champion Americans as well, recording a wide variety of solid talents in both the US and UK, like Eddie Boyd, Fury Lewis and Booker White as well as leasing sides for UK releases by greats like B.B. King and Elmore James. Vernon himself made a solo album for Blue Horizon in the early 70s with Rory Gallagher as one of the guest guitarists. In the early 70s he produced Dutch
2: progressive rockers Focus, moving into Seoul in the mid 70s with the American group Bloodstone, which include their big hit Natural High and the Olympic Runners. Over the next couple of decades he maintained an active profile as a producer although he didn't generate discs with the commercial or artistic impact of those he'd
1: overseen during the British Blues boom. Well, he couldn't really, because that was just intense. It's too enough, mate. Generally, he kept his hands on the rootsy sector, working at various points with Dr Feelgood, Chris Farlow, Freddie King and Jimmy Witherspoon. Outside of R&B, there were projects with Dexys Midnight Runners, the Pasadenas and the Proclaimers. Eclectic, didn't even cover it. In 1973, Sire
2: Records released a solo album, Moment of Madness. He was also a member of the Olympic Runners, as I mentioned, between 74 and 79, and acted as their producer for them. And he was also, too, a producer Producer and member of Rocky Sharp on the replays between 79 and 83, with the replays he sang
1: bass under the pseudonym of Eric Rondo. Okay, he founded the Indigo and Code Blue record labels in the 1990s. Vernon came out of retirement to produce Danny Wilde's album Shine and the second album by the blues prodigy. Ollie Brown. And in September 2018,
2: his first solo album on Manhattan Records, Beyond the Blues Horizon, was released. And there's about, well, there's about three, four pages of uh, discography here, which is just mind-blowing. It gives you an idea of the scope of records he was involved with. So we'll move on to the Bowie connection. We will. All right. So in 1967, Mike Vernon was a producer for Bowie's self-titled debut album on Decca. Oddly, considering Vernon's own tastes and Bowie's past background in which he'd often sung and recorded R&B, there was no blues or R&B on the album. It was Bowie and his Anthony Newley phase, as we know. And the arrangement's very much in the musical style, which Vernon wasn't fond of and certainly wasn't experienced
1: in. OK, so uh, from The Independent in 2010, Ken Pitt's first attempt to make Bowie a star involved taking a demo to Hugh Mendel of DRAM, a progressive pop subsidiary set up uh, by the Decca label, in order to revive its dowdy image. Decca's in-house producer, Mike Vernon, was given the job of taking Bowie's strange songs and turning them into something the young, record-buying public might be interested in. I'd never heard of him, Vernon says. My first reaction
2: was, is he young Anthony Newley? There was a dramatic show-tune influence in the songs and a storytelling approach that It was unique at the time. He was hip, even if he wasn't famous, and I realised that producing this record would broaden my horizons. The whole album, from going into the studio to the
1: mastering, took a week. Vernon says, I remember thinking, this is a really quirky record. Who on earth will buy it? But when we did Love You Till Tuesday, I could see that Bowie was special. I thought, if we can just come up with a song that has that certain something, this guy might just go somewhere. Uh,
2: however, the song that dirham decided had that certain something was The Laughing Gnome. Perhaps it's time to reevaluate this uh, much-mocked novel. Single writes uh, The Independent. The Laughing Gnome took almost as long as the entire debut album to record because we had to do all the speeded up vocals, which is quite difficult in those days, Vernon says, referring to the Gnome's chipmunk like parts uh, provided by Bowie himself and also by uh, Gus Dudgeon, as as we know. It became a top 10 hit a few years later, by which time Bowie was famous. It was a terrible embarrassment to him, but to all concerned, it was only ever intended
1: as a funny children's record. And I have said this before, but yeah. I went to see Bowie doing his sound check at the MEN <laughs> Arena and he did a little bit of, he just did a little, sung a little bit of The Laughing Gnome. So there's not many people seen him do wow. it, but uh, I'm lucky enough to say that I have. Uh, Bowie had never talked about his debut in public. Now, David Bowie is being reissued on the same day as the release of a live album from his Reality World Tour of 2004. The collision suggests a wish to bury this portrait of his former self. But as Vernon says, David can't really disown it because that's the way he was at the time. Yeah, you can't argue with that. Can can you? Nope. So uh, well, I interviewed Mike Vernon in
2: 2015 for a magazine called, which well, just called The Blues. And it was, it was a marathon. Was <laughs> it, it went on for hours. He was living in Spain at the time. I'm not sure if he's still there, but he was just getting back into producing and he just he was talking about wanting to get a band together and start playing gigs around the UK And just because he'd been away for quite a while. You know, right. He'd been in seclusion, really. And so we got talking about everything, but because it was for a blues magazine, I had to start you know, at the start. Well, so, oh, that's fair enough. Isn't so, it? so along the way, of course, I was really keen to uh, talk about Bowie and how that all happened. So your first question was, how instrumental was Hugh Mendel in allowing you free reign? Uh, he said well Frank Lee was head of the total department at Decca and he was the main producer for the orchestral pop stuff. Hugh also had a lot of control and a more varied interesting roster of artists. He was into folk music and musicals, stuff like that. He had artists like Julie Felix and Anthony Newley which was interesting because that's
1: how I got the Bowie job he was brought to Decker as an artist by Ken Pitt. Hugh took a liking to him, and I think it was because he sounded like a young version of Anthony Newley at the time. I think David must have been influenced by him in some way. I just thought it was an interesting project, but I have to admit that I never really understood what it was all about. But I was a staff producer and was asked to do it. Hugh seemed so enthusiastic, so I thought, why not? And then you asked him the question, was there anything about him that struck you as special?
2: And he said just the total originality of what he was trying to do. It was like poetry, very poetic, but set to music. And sometimes it wasn't even set to music. It was like a semi-spoken thing. It was just odd. He had a very strong theatrical element to it. My only concern was that, first of all, I personally didn't understand it. Mm. Uh, But I couldn't also get to grips with who was going to buy this, who was going to listen to it. That was specifically for the album. Then when he got into things like The Laughing Gnome, he said, I'm making this for kids. I love children. They'll love this. And he was right. They did. It was like an English spoof of the chipmunks. I mean, the funny thing was, his reticence was borne out, wasn't it? Because nobody did buy it. No, he was absolutely right. Mm. Uh, And then I said to him, then in 1973, he said he's the biggest star in Britain and
1: Laughing Gnome's in the top ten. Uh, so he said, I know, it's extraordinary. For me, the one really successful recording that Bowie and I did together was Love You Till Tuesday, which I thought was a really fabulous song. We got a full orchestral sound on it, and it had a real commercial feel. It very nearly made the charts, but it didn't quite get there. He continued, then there was a period of a few years before he
2: reappeared, ironically, with Gus Dudgeon producing uh, Space Oddity. He and Gus got on really well together when we did the album, it's no surprise to me that they carried on building a working relationship. When Gus decided that engineering was wasn't his forte. He was a great person to bounce ideas off. He had a lot of ideas of his own. So it's no surprise to me that he went into production. So it's funny, isn't it? You've got a producer there who really can't understand what he's doing with this artist and he can't relate to him, but his engineer does. And so he just
1: lets him have free reign. It's funny, isn't it, also? Because, I mean, that's that's the situation you find yourself in as an in-house producer. You just get what you're given. Yeah, yeah. So one day you could be doing, well, you know, a folk band, and then the next day you could be doing proto-prog or yeah. whatever. You Just whatever lands in your lap, and you've just got to deal with it.
2: Yeah, you also, kind of reading that there, you wonder how uh, enthusiastic Hugh Mendel really was, or whether it was Ken Pitt, you know, just trying to urge him, saying, look, I've got the next big star here, really need to get behind
1: this guy, whether it was just that. You know, he made a promise to Ken Pitt. Well, Ken Pitt was just so... Uh, it, 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 crucial to Bowie's career wasn't he? as we know I mean he just really believed in David and, and stuck with him right the way through until Tony DeFeese just knocked on the door yeah of course The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes V is for Velvet Goldmine. It's a 1998 British American musical drama directed and co written by Todd Haynes. It's set in Britain during the glam rock era of the early 70s and tells the story of a fictional pop star, Brian Slade. Yeah, so. So, did you watch this, Bob? I have seen it and I have to say I didn't like it. Yeah, me too. I just thought it was
2: appalling. Really, yeah, I really it was pretty horrible. C- pretty cynical of yourself. Pretty rotten. Uh, so, we'll have a look at the cast, shall we? So,. Uh, Ewan McGregor as Kurt Wilde. Christian Bale as Arthur Stewart Jonathan Rhys-Myers as Brian Slade Tony Collette as Mandy Slade Eddie Izzard as
1: Jerry Devine uh, Mickey Westmoreland as Jack Ferry, Alistair Cumming as Tommy Stone Emily Wolfe as Shannon Joseph Beattie as Cooper Michael Feast as
2: Cecil the great Lindsay Kemp as pantomime Dame, of course. Yeah, and Janet McTeer as narrator. So we move on to the Bowie parallels here, because it, obviously it references Bowie, not just in the title.
1: Yeah, for sure. The film centres on Brian Slade, a sexually fluid and androgynous glam rock icon who was patterned after David Bowie, Jabriath and, to a lesser extent, Mark Bolan.
2: Ewan McGregor co-stars in the role of Kurt Wilde, a genre-defying performer who doesn't back down from sex, nudity or drugs on or off stage and whose biographical
1: details are based on... Iggy Pop and Lou Reed also featured a Christian Bale as young glam rock fan and reporter Arthur Stewart, and Tony Collette as Slade's wife Mandy, who is based on Bowie's first wife Angela. Eddie Izzard stars as Slade's manager Jerry Devine. The
2: tale strongly parallels Bowie's relationships with Reed and Pop in the 70s and 80s. Brian Slade's gradually overwhelming onstage persona of Maxwell, Demon, and his backing band, Venus in Furs, likewise bear a resemblance to Bowie's persona and backing band. It's just
1: very, very clunky and hacky, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I, I, it needs to be said, I'm sure we'd get to it at some point or other, uh, but David Bowie, did uh, he refused to allow them any kind of access to his own material, did yeah, he? Yeah, we'll get to that in a bit. Okay, then. So, as with Slade and Wilde, Bowie produced records for and with both Pop and Reed. The band name, Venus and Furs is of course taken from a Velvet Underground song, while Maxwell Demon was the name of an early band of Brian Eno's. Haynes has said that the story
2: is also about the love affair between America and Britain, New York City and London, in the way that each music scene feeds off the other and influences the other. Little Richard is shown as an early influence on Brian Slade, and of course, in real life, Little Richard was a big inspiration on David Bowie. Little Richard had also
1: been cited by Haynes as the inspiration for Jack Ferry. Okay, so uh, Jean Genet, the subject of Haynes' previous film, Poison, and the inspiration for the title of Bowie's Jean Genie, is referred to in imagery and also quoted in dialogue. Since its 1999
2: DVD release, the film has become a cult classic Mm. and has been described as having an obsessive following amongst younger audiences. Haynes said in a 2007 interview, a film that had the hardest time, at least initially, was Velvet Goldmine, and it's the film that seems to mean the most to a lot of teenagers and young people who are just obsessed with that movie. They're exactly who I was thinking about when I made Velvet Goldmine, but I just didn't get to them the first time round.
1: I doubt you know. I mean, uh, uh, far be it from me to question his uh, thoughts on this, but uh, it sounds to me like he was just really making it, because uh, it's quite prorient and all that kind yeah, of yeah, stuff. Yeah. But you would also, and should have, been an to me and you, if it hadn't have been clunky and hackneyed, yeah, exactly. You, you know got all it, the it, elements in there. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and you can imagine also people watching it with. Uh, I will say this, you know, when you say it's so bad it's good. Yes, as you know, whether this cult kind of thing is picking up momentum because of that, I I couldn't possibly no, say. No. Well, I just did, probably. <laughs> okay, to the soundtrack then. Although the character of Brian Slade is heavily based on Bowie, Bowie himself disliked the script and vetoed the proposal that his songs appear in the film. However, as producer of Lou Reed's 1972 album Transformer, his backing vocals can be heard on Satellite Love, the best backing vocals right, in yeah. the world ever. Which, in a way, is a great old two fingers uh, salute to everybody because <laughs> the best musical moment on that will be. David Bowie's backing vocals on Satellite of Love. I rest my case, Your Honour.
2: Whoa, well rested. According to some reports, when Bowie learned that the script for the film was partially based on on the unauthorised biography Stardust, the David Bowie story, written by Henry Edwards and Tony Zanetta, as well as backstage
1: passes, written by his ex-wife Angie Bowie, he threatened the producers with a lawsuit. I mean, they mustn't have done the research or not been bothered, because anything that had anything to do with Angie Bowie, David would immediately uh, balk yeah, I, out, I, I think. Bowie songs were therefore not used, and the script was partially rewritten to avoid unnecessary resemblance between Bowie and the Bowie-style character Brian Slade. Just because are that you make a, a film basically
2: centred around Bowie's sort of mythic persona and then you have to rewrite it so it doesn't look like him. And he's called Slade. Mm. Interviewed the following year about the removal of various Bowie songs from the film's original soundtrack, so that would be All the Young Dudes, Velvet Goldmine, Lady Stardust, Moon Age Daydream, Sweet Thing, and Lady Grinning Soul. Bowie explained, I read the script thoroughly and I made sure that I saw
1: all of Todd Haynes' movies, to see what kind of filmmaker he was. Then I said no. Ouch. Oh. Uh, when Brian first sees Mandy, he says, Do you jive that's what Davy Bowie is supposed to have said when he first saw his first wife, Angie. That was at a gig at the Speakeasy by King Crimson. King Crimson, it? yeah, yeah. Uh, when Jerry Devine. Eddie Izzard proposes a project to Kurt Wilde. Kurt says, heroin was my main man, but now I'm on the methadone and I'm getting my act together and you come here to say you want to help and I say, hey, far out, you could be my main man. This is a nod to the name of Bowie's manager, Tony DeFee's management company. It is so clunky, isn't it? It, it really just, is. Just is. like, just oh. Shoehorning these references in. Yeah, tragic. Uh, director
2: Todd Haynes said at the time, I really hope Bowie can see in the film the affection and respect I have for him. Do you
1: know I mean? Uh, yeah. It was coming from a good place. You can't deny that, can you? Yeah, I mean, you look at it, but uh, again, you see, that's what I'm saying. If he really loved Bowie and he understood him, he would have known, really, that he wouldn't want a load of the Tony Defeat stuff kind of raking, raking up yeah, anyway, yeah. but also anything that men- mentions or references Angie or is alluding to her is not going to be right. And if you look at all of the tunes that he had of Bowie's that were supposed to be in there, mm. there's loads of them. Yeah, I know. So, so he just really cocked up there. Yeah. If, if he had of, like, uh, Box Clever, he might have just been out of skirt around that and get David's uh, thumbs up, but he just jumped in with both feet and was clunky, uh, as we've said on many, many
2: occasions. (laughs) So, uh, and just went all to to all the wrong sources. Mm. So, Bowie commented further, this was on uh, Todd Haynes' quote about him, hope he sees all the affection and respect I have for him. Bowie commented, the film didn't understand how innocent everybody was back then about what they were getting into. Also, there was a lot more shopping.
1: (laughs) Brilliant, and I mean, yeah, I, that puts me immediately to, uh, to mind of liberties with uh, with <laughs> Bowie and Angie, followed by the spiders going round looking at material for the yeah. suits, and like uh, Woody saying, oh, "Woody, oh, I thought we were in a rock and roll band. I thought we'd be going to the pub or something." Yeah. And there we are, looking at bloody material. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot more comedic. Oh, that's just so brilliant from Bowie, though. Uh, Tony Visconti weighed in by saying, "I think Velvet Goldmine was grossly inaccurate about those times. I think it was unfair to borrow from Bowie's life and distort it so much." Rock on, Tony. And create the illusion that it was Bowie and not some fictional character. Basically, I thought it was a gay porn film disguised as a musical. That's a
2: damning. <laughs> yeah. isn't it? Uh, the British musicians who played under the name The Venus in Furs on the soundtrack included Tom York of Radiohead and Johnny Greenwood of the same band, Swades Bernard
1: Butler, and Roxy Music's Andy Mackay. The American musicians who played as Kurt Wild's Wild Rats uh, on the soundtrack were the studio's Ron Ashton, Thurston Moore and Steve Shelley of Sonic Youth, Minutemen's Mike Watt. Gumball's Don Fleming and Mark Arm of Mudhoney. That's a cool line-up.
2: It is. Further tragedy to this, isn't Mm. it? If only the film. Anyway, the soundtrack features new songs written for the film by Pulp, Shudder to Think and Grant Lee Buffalo, as well as many early glam rock compositions. Lou Reed, Brian Eno, T-Rex and Steve Harley songs from the period are also included. All three members of Placebo appeared in the film, with Brian Molko and Steve Hewitt playing members of the Flaming Creatures and Stefan Oldstahl playing Polly Smalls bassist.
1: The film's disclaimer reads, although what you're about to see is a work of fiction, it should nevertheless be played at maximum volume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. An allusion to Bowie's Ziggy Stardust album, which contains the instruction to be played at maximum volume. God, talk about, you know, oh. using a sledgehammer to crack a wall. No.
2: Further crowbarring here, Maxwell Demon's guitarist shares his name, Trevor, with Bowie's old bassist, Trevor Boulder, and his last name is Finn, as in T-Rex percussionist Mickey Finn. Wilde's backing band, The Rats, shares its name with one of Mick Ronson's earliest groups.
1: No more, Bob! <laughs> (laughs) I can't speak anymore.
2: It also alludes Mark to Vicky Pop's band, the Stooges, and the both words share a similar meaning, rat and stooge, meaning terms for somebody who is an informer. Okay, so let's
1: look at the one shining beacon in this barrel of shit. (laughs) Velvet Goldmine, the song. (laughs) Okay. I love this song. Oh. And you know, and 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 to me, I often describe it as the best B-side ever. And wait, I'm wasted as a B-side You know, It these, is these completely wasted happen, It is really is a shining beacon in a barrel of shit this. Absolutely So Velvet Goldman was written by Bowie and recorded during the sessions for the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars It was Recorded on the 11th of
2: November 71 the song didn't make it onto the album sadly despite being chalked up on the original Master Tape's running order its slot was effectively replaced by Starman after Bowie
1: was told by RCA's A&R department that they needed a hit single for the album The song was originally Demoed as He's a Gold Mine. In a radio interview in 1972, prior to it being dropped from the album, Bowie said he felt Velvet Gold Mine was a lovely thing and very David Bowie. It was and it still is David. Yeah, Velvet Gold Mine was eventually released as the B side alongside
2: changes of the UK reissue of Space Oddity in 1975, which got to number one in the UK charts and gave Bowie his first UK chart topper. Bowie had moved to LA at the time of the release, said later of the song's inclusion, the whole thing came out without my having a
1: chance to listen to the mix. Somebody else had mixed it. An extraordinary move. Although it was originally thought that Bowie wrote the song as the description of him making out with another man, it was claimed by Bowie in 1990 that he was writing in the third person and taking two worshipping Ziggy Stardust through a groupie's eyes. You've got crazy legs, you've got amazing head, you've got rings on your fingers and your hair's hot red. Social pressures and RCA's managerial stance against suggestive or provocative
2: lyrics at the time resulted in Bowie rewriting the song to be slightly more ambiguous compared to the demo, although it's still considered too risque a song, even after watering down the lyrics, to be released in 1972.
1: So they'd obviously not heard Walk on the Wild Side, No. Then, from the same record company. Mm. Blimey. I mean, it's funny, isn't it, because like, we talk about the BBC not recognising, <laughs> you know, the giving headline. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> RCA are balking at that. And then you've got the most blunt, I know, it it, it seems so innocuous in comparison, doesn't it? In a radio interview just before the release of the Ziggy album, Bowie described Velvet Goldmine as a lovely tune, but probably a little provocative. A similar fate befell Sweet Head, another rocker with sexual lyrics that was dropped from Ziggy in favour of a cover of It Ain't Easy. The structure and chords at the end of Velvet
2: Goldmine were later borrowed for Bowie's 1978 revolutionary song, which he wrote for the Just a Gigolo film soundtrack under the name The Rebels. So that's it for this episode of the A to Z of David Bowie. But once again, before you go... If you'd like to support us
1: along the way and be a member of an exclusive Bowie club, you can. And here's how. There's an exclusive Bowie members club called Cheap Things. And for just $5 a month, wow, you can be part of it. Why? So now you're thinking, $5 isn't much, but what exactly will I get for my hard-earned cash? Well, in short, you'll get lots of great new exclusive material delivered to your door. Well, computer, actually, Mark. Via a system called Patreon. That's right. Mark. Patreon is a
2: payment system that allows you to contribute your monthly subscription and offers you a portal to access the exclusive material. Materials such as... Interviews with Bowie's cohorts and friends. There'll
1: be regular film Bowie quizzes. Bowie guitar tutorials. Unreleased archive written material. Competitions. And perhaps most impressively, short films featuring the Cheap Things team. Ah, that'll be me, Mark, Howard Knock and Jason Reed Visiting various Bowie places of interest. And much more besides. All this for just $5 a month. So if you can't
2: resist, simply go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com com forward slash cheap things, or one word, and join up. There's also a website,
0: boegcheapthings.com Book early!